Vernomatic Productions. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno. Direct from New Jersey, Metal Walt, and from the band Motor Lord, Ian O'Rourke. Good evening, everybody. As always, new content drops Thursday nights. We hope Rocktober finds everyone safe and healthy. On this week's show, we get the whole gang back together to resume our ongoing series, The History of Metal. This year, it's 1994. Metal Walt, Ian O'Rourke from the band Motor Lord, and Bill the Rager from Order of the Dead tackle this year. I'm actually taking this episode off. But you know what? These guys will navigate you all the way through it as grunge is in full swing. New metal is gaining momentum. Industrial metal's making an entrance. And our bands from the 80s, they're still releasing material, but they're definitely on the back burner. It's a real smorgasbord of content, many different facets of metal. They're fighting for, you know, supremacy in this ever-growing metal landscape. The guys totally dissect where they were at this point of their lives, what they were into, what shows they were going to, where they were seeing them. It's hard to believe it was 30 years ago, but you know what? It really did happen. But before we get into this, if you're new to the show by either following us through Pantheon Music Podcast Platform or our YouTube uh, join our community by getting up to MetalMayhemROC.com. Join our email list. There you get alerts for brand new podcast shows, new exclusive YouTube interviews, alerts for my radio show on Monday night on Metal Devastation Radio, CD reviews, concert reviews. It's all up there. MetalMayhemROC.com. Get into the archive drop-down box, recent audio podcast. Last week we had Rick Emmett of Triumph. Tommy Victor of Prong, Udo Dirkschneider. They all have new material out. The YouTube channel, uh, let's see, we had an interview with Wendy Dio, Sean Dover of Withering Scorn, Raven, Jag Panzer, Heaven's Edge. It's all up there. There's tons of content. So do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. If you uh, do leave a review, we'll read it on the air. So listen, we appreciate you listening, viewing, all that good stuff. Now. Let my cohorts of metal get you into the year 1994, the history of metal. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. Tonight, we have a good episode. Uh, the band has come out of hiatus and retirement. The keys have been lost to that secret room in the basement for a long time. I went down there, I opened the door, and who came out? Bill the Rager and Ian O'Rourke. Guys, welcome back to Metal Mayhem ROC. It's been a while. Right on. What's going on, brother? We're glad to glad to be back. It's been a minute. It's, it's been a minute. As we said last time, it feels like it took 10 years from 1992 to 1993, and I think it's been 18 years to get to 1994. But here we are. 
Listen, we are going to pull apart 1984, 1994, all the way through from the good, the bad, the different, the ugly, whatever it is in between. But, um, Bill, what was just as on a personal note, what was going on with you in 1994? You know, 94, I was living in Tampa, Florida, and uh, I was fully immersed in the music scene down there. I was in a band called Swollen and was jamming with Richard Burnell, the old ex-guitar player from Morbid Angel. And, uh, you know, so I I had my finger on the pulse of music at the time. And things were strange, I have to say. You know, extreme metal was going strong, but but mainstream metal was kind of on the... In a weird place at the time, I would say. Well, you know, absolutely. And we're going to go deep into all the albums that came out in this year and the different trends. And you're right. It was a kind of a fragmented year. And I look at it as, you know, whereas 1987 or 88 was kind of the pinnacle for our eighties heroes. I think 1994 was the pinnacle for like the grunge era. You know, you you start looking at the top of the mountain and the albums that came out this year. And I don't think it got any better than this. And then you started seeing a trend into some new forms of metal coming through, but We'll get into all that. But, Ian, what was 1994 all about for you? So, 94, uh, singing and playing guitar in a band called DNR. We were doing, uh, we were completely against the grain of everything else that was going on. So, a lot of the, a lot of the bands that were, that were around, we were into. Um, but we were still digging a lot of stuff from the old days and we were just trying to bring it into, the new era. And it was, I can remember it being tough going, but there was still enough rockers out there that when we would show up and play gigs that you would get to people that would all of a sudden migrate from the bar area and come stand up close to the stage because they're like, Oh, I'm not watching some kid in his, you know, cardigan, you know, and some ripped out jeans staring at the floor, you know, trying to pretend that he's Kurt Cobain. So that, that was uh, that was pretty much my experience with that. But musically, you know, like Bill was saying, I mean, it was there was so much wavering, so much up and down. There was some stuff that came out, and it was, man, who would have thought that they would have done that? But then there's other stuff that came out, and you're like, eh, it's kind of a mediocre pass at what everybody else has just done. So it, it's going to be an interesting conversation for sure. You, what about you? 1994 for me. I mean, I'm not a musician, but. Again, I was hanging on. I, uh, I I still there was a lot of concerts I went to. I was big into the fight tour, uh, the war mm. words. They were still circling the stage in 94. We talked about that yeah. last episode. Got yep. on a lot of shows on that. Anthrax was around with Johnny Bush at that time. Uh, Rush Loved kicked it. off their counterparts tour. I was down in opening night in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, early in 1994, and then the one and only time I saw Pink Floyd as Pink Floyd on the Division Bell tour. So a little bit non-metal, oh. but, you know, it's up in the nosebleed seats of Giant Stadium. But again, you know, Overkill was always through the area in Jersey. Always great metal shows. Uh, a couple of the bands we're going to talk about tonight, I saw some good gigs on. But um, sure. all right, well, let's get into it. Uh, Ian, start us off. What Pick an album, a band. What do we want to talk here? All right. I think that if uh, if I had to come to some kind of place where we all would have some kind of maybe connection to it, I can't not start off with not talking about Far Beyond Driven by Pantera. Okay, because that album, when it came out, was so abrasive. 
and so heavy, but had such a good groove that um, it just really kind of, it took from where vulgar display of power went and just kind of upped it by 10. It was just a fantastic album. <clears throat> all of the music, all of the, you know, the, the vocals by Phil, all of a sudden he just completely got guttural. Everything just became aggressive and dark. And it was just very, you know, I mean, look at the, you know, some of the songs that are on there, you know, becoming, you know, good friends in a bottle of pills. Listen to the words on that song sometimes, you know, I mean, that, you want to talk about a song to make you want to kill yourself. That's one shedding skin. Fantastic. You know, and then just for shits and giggles, they decide to throw that curveball in there for all of the fans and end the album with a cover of Planet Caravan by Sabbath. And I remember thinking to myself, when you're reading the liner notes, when they discussed it, I was like, that's perfect. That's the perfect way to end that album is to do that. Because you just went through that entire roller coaster ride of that album, which is more like, you know, racing down the freeway at 100 miles an hour with no brakes. And uh, and then you get to the end of the album. It's like, there we go. Let's push play again. Yep. So. Now, Bill, you're Your Bill, you're into the the heavier side of metal, of course. Was this uh one that you gravitated to back then? Yeah, I mean it was uh I was <clears throat> fully into Pantera at the time, and when that album came out, yeah, it was uh it was definitely um uh brutal right from the get-go. And I you know, I saw them on that tour twice, I want to say, and they played Tampa twice, and man, they they crushed it. Yeah, they did. It was a very good show. And uh, and actually, I met uh, Dimebag and Phil that that first night, the first time they played there. What was that exchange like? Yeah, it was it was it, it was just a big giant party by oh, backstage. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of drinking, a lot of hooting and hollering, and uh, people going nuts. <laughs> you, was, you could tell they were they were loving life at the time. Was Crowbar uh, one of the supporters on that? That no, on that tour, um, geez, I you know I saw him so many times. I want to say, uh, oh my gosh, it wasn't Crowbar though. In fact, um, oh man, I, I'm I'm blanking on who it was, but I know it wasn't Crowbar. Okay, that might come I, I know I know that on the the prior tour that they had done some shows, and then early on, I guess in the on the on the Far Beyond Driven tour. They did shows, and then eventually they hooked up with. I think they hooked up with Manson at one point. There was typo negative. That's who I saw with typo. Yeah, Yeah. Skid Row as well. Um, It was. uh, I don't know if that was on this album or previous albums. I was actually at a little fun fun party this past weekend. Mario Barth had a big tattoo convention up in Jersey called Inked Out, and they had a little eighties metal gig. At the end of the night, and they brought in uh, nice. Stephen Piercy, Sebastian Bach, Tamey Down, and uh, Phil Lewis. And they played with the house band with some of the Canadian guys from uh, Slash and the Conspirators, uh, Todd Kearns and Brett Fitz. So anyway, oh, yeah. um, uh, Bach is up there, and he was reminding people that on these early tours, they were uh, Pantera was the opening act for Skid Row, and they hit, I think it was the Slave to the Grind tour. So, But yeah, Pantera definitely grew to this period right now where, again, I think this is where now... They were the new face of metal. Um, this was probably their, you know, climbing the mountain, their peak, and they would only get bigger from here. Um, some of the other heavier bands, like I was looking at the back catalog, Testament, Overkill, 
uh, Slayer, all put albums this year. Now, uh, Overkill for me, being a local guy, a big fan of this, and WFO, I mean, it seems like Overkill put out an album every year in the 90s, but Why Fucking Open was a killer album, and just simply for the tracks, Where It Hurts, Supersonic Hate, Under One, and then they had Bastard Nation and Gasoline Dream. These were, I mean, these are just five fucking amazing overkill metal songs, hands down. Um, I love that album. The other Slayer, Slayer, Divine Intervention, I'm not the biggest Slayer fan, but I don't remember that one. What about you guys? Divine Intervention to me, it was just, a, I, I did, I'm not a big fan of that album. I did see him on that tour with Machine Head. I should have revisited it before this talk, but I don't remember liking that album too much. It seemed a bit too jammy. <laughs> yes. No, really. You're you're not far off. Yeah, because I, I, I can remember thinking this is a total departure. I almost thought that they were starting to go the corn route, you know, with some of the, yes. the vibe of what, what was going on. Um, Testament, though, low. Great album. Sick album. Very heavy. Very, very low. So dark and heavy. Yeah, it was just oof. And then Overkill. I mean, Overkill was great. But yeah, this was that period with Slayer. You know, like Bill alluded to. I mean, they kind of got weird for a bit. You know, this was was one of those albums that just was not your run-of-the-mill Slayer. You know, I mean, I, I, I always go on record saying, I mean, you know, South of Heaven and Seasons in the Abyss to me are, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the early stuff, but those two albums to me are like, now this is great material. This is great songwriting. When they hit this period right here, I was kind of like, I don't really care for it, you know? And I I just didn't, I wasn't digging the vibe, you know, but, you know, personal opinion. Yeah, no, same here. And and the majority of my friends felt the same way too, that we we're, that we're big into Slayer. At the time, we just felt that record was it, it was like they were just going through the motions. Yeah, and they're they were trying something new, but it wasn't quite fitting. Yep, right for them, of course. Yeah, yeah I just yeah, I just don't remember liking that album too much. Now talking about bands that in that same kind of uh, explanation that sort of went in a different direction, and we weren't sure if we liked it, but we did, but we didn't. How about Queensrÿche, The Promised Land? Um, now, this one for me, I, it was definitely a departure. I mean, they came off Mindcrime and Empire. And, you know, you're yeah. just expecting that they're going to make a 10 out of 10 album every time. Promised Land comes in and it's very different, right? I mean, you had the heavier tracks such as Damage and IMI, but then you come into stuff like Disconnected, Lady Jane. Um, and I think this was the time where there was starting to become a little bit of divide between Tate and DeGarmo. Tate's going one way. He's doing what he wants. The Garmo's sort of backing off. Um, they were still a big band, but in a sense, they are already on their way down from their peak. So did you guys, what did you guys dig about this album or not about this album? Just like you said, it, it you know, it had some great tunes on it, but the majority of it was very dull. Jeff Tate was the big influence on, they're trying to write another hit. Yeah. And it just didn't quite take. But I will say I saw that tour and man, that tour was phenomenal. They had right. a great stage show. They had like a it was like they were acting out a play. 
and there was different acts and they had different stage setups. I mean, it was amazing. I don't know if you guys saw that tour. No, I remember that, hearing about it, Bill, but I, yeah, it, I didn't it get a chance to incredible. Yeah, I saw that. And, yeah. and Typo Negative opened up that tour. And that was when Typo yep. was in, you know, they were the band that didn't fit in anywhere anyway. So they would just get shoved on all these tours. But it was a big package, sure. Bill, playing the amphitheaters, right? I actually, I saw him in a, uh, it was indoors in Tampa. It was uh, summertime. Mm-hmm. So it was indoors, but it was, uh, I think it might have been the Florida State Fairgrounds, actually. Speaking of Tampa, since you bring it up, our boys from Sabotage, right? They released the first album without Chris Oliva and uh, it's Handful of Rain. Now, Ian, you and I are big Sabotage junkies. Yeah. We like all the eras, but uh, I love this album. It was also a rebirth of the band for me. It was kind of odd seeing uh, Alex Skolnick up there playing guitar live, but you know it didn't make sense at the time. We couldn't understand how they could continue without Chris, but you had Zach up there. It was his second album in tour. Yeah. And yet John over there in the corner playing keyboards in the wings, it was different, but it was good. Um, what'd you think of that I, one? I loved it, you know, and you know, it was it was kind of that band-aid, I think, that a bunch of sabotage fans felt. You know, I mean, there's a lot of guys, you know, I mean, I know that Bill, you know, harkens back to the, you know, the sirens and the, you know, the early stuff that's, you know, really just you know, and I think didn't you have you had experience with them when you were in Tampa, right? Didn't you have some yeah, I actually of- met John Oliva at Morris Sound Studios right around, uh, geez, I had to be when they were recording this album, actually. Yeah. And um, I had a tough time with this album, though, because I am an, I'm old school. I like the, the first three albums. Uh, you know, Power of the Night to me is just amazing. And, sure. and so, you know, I don't dislike it. It just it was such a uh, change that I had a yeah. hard time getting into it. Sure. But this album actually got a lot of radio play in Tampa. I don't know about elsewhere, but they they played uh oh geez, what song was it? Handful uh, of Rain. Probably Handful of Rain. Probably yes. Handful of Rain. Yeah. See, I can remember when when this came out, the one the first thing that caught me off right off the bat was uh Taunted Cobras opening track. And I, I you automatically you're figuring, okay, you know, well, they clearly had uh Skolnick involved with some of the writing aspect of it. And, but, you know, I mean, unbeknownst to a lot of people, I mean, John Oliva, you know, sat there all the time with Chris, you know, nailing stuff out, you know, Chris was the virtuoso, but John is no slouch. John can play guitar very well. And John is a monster on the piano, um, as we all know, you know, and, you know, his voice, I mean, I still love his voice as one of my favorites of all time, you know, especially when you hear him. I mean, he just had a distinct voice and it was powerful. And, um, you know, the one thing I will say with this is you can see how post uh, Hall of the Mountain King, by the time they got to this point, you know, after gutter ballet, you get in the streets, you can see that build the theatrical build, the more, um, that kind of dynamic build, you know, very orchestral, very, you know, it's still heavy, it's still metallic, but it's taking on a different creation. And you can see where it's a very easy step from this album to the next album to now all of a sudden everybody's favorite Christmas show, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You know, you can see it with that progression. Well, just picking out the song Chance, I mean, to me, this is the best song on the album. 
But that one stood out. Everybody, you know, it's track three on the album. You get Taunting Cobras, which is your traditional metal track. You say, eh, all right, it's okay. I get it. And then you have the, the title track, which was good. And then Chance comes on. And when you hear it for the first time, you're like, what? Wait, what is this? Right? And uh, just a great track. Probably one of the better, the best sabotage tracks. I think top 10 songs in their whole catalog across the album, in my opinion. It's but, it's a good. that and the, Like you know. I said, the thing was it with the, with the vocal dynamics and Zach doing that um, acapella, you know, singing where he's harmonizing with himself. So all of a sudden he comes in on this line and then he comes in over on this side with this line comes in here. But the whole thing is building and then it gets to that big mm, chance, you know, that big chorus. It's like, wow, holy cow. Who would have thought that that would have occurred? Yeah. But in this time, you know, and, you know, Bill alluded to this and, you know, our, our pre-production, you know, it's, this was, it was such a weird time, but there was, with the crap, there were moments of brilliance. And this album, for me, at least personally, was had some moments of brilliance on it that really kind of jumped right out at you. Bill, you, you alluded in the beginning of the show, you had kind of mixed feelings of this year as a whole. Like, what were your, some of the things you really disliked or maybe what were some of your favorites, the, the kind of shining stars in this year? I mean, the things I disliked, I honestly, like when grunge first came around, I didn't mind it because it was a change. It was different. It was, uh, you know, it was a breath of fresh air at the time because hair metal was really was getting kind of kind of played out, I guess. And um, but then at the same time, by 1994, I was worn out. It was just this seemed like things were starting to get regurgitated. And it it was probably the peak time of it. But it was also, it was not cool to like Judas Priest. It wasn't cool to like Iron Maiden. Uh, guitar solos were almost non-existent, you right. know. Right. And and so '94 was a kind of a tough year for me. And uh, in that sense, I, I you know I can't really say there's anything I truly hate. Um, but you know, like by that time, to me, Soundgarden, I just, I didn't really care for that that album. And so much, and you know, I, I liked their earlier stuff. I thought they were they were different when they first came around, and and just uh, you know, and, and I know this album was definitely their peak as far as commercial and accessibility and whatnot. But I, I guess I, I just wasn't as much of a fan of it. In fact, I, Spoon, no. Spoon Man, I got to say this: why, why you yeah. can't hear the damn spoons? Why? <laughs> Turn this a little bit, just a little bit. You can hear it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. This was the FM album, yeah. though. This was what was played on hard rock radio. Like in New York, we had K-Rock, 92.3 K-Rock and, you know, six, seven songs off of this album. I mean, yes, they were a little bit more radio friendly. And to a degree, I agree with you, Bill. This was a uh, it was a, you know, slow change of them into the more mainstream. But for a guy like me, like I love this album. I, I mean, this to me is just great top to bottom i love this one well i think like you know 87 88 was that pinnacle you know this was one of those albums that was that okay this is this is it this is nothing you're gonna do is gonna go beyond this you know and i think you could see that this was those flickering flames of that comet coming across the sky that was Soundgarden. just like you know i mean you know allison chains for you know for better portion you know i mean they had they released jar of flies 
But, you know, other than being the, the radio-friendly little EP that it is, there was nothing stand out versus the, the Dirt album, which came before it. And by the time you get to the next album, it's almost like it was, okay, we're going to take the last remnants of leftovers that we had while Lane was still cognate, and we were together as a band, and we're going to throw that out there. But, you know, I mean... It, you know, I mean, there's there's radio friendly stuff on there, but for the most part, it's all kind of just, yeah, you know, it's di- it's different. Yeah. It is. It's radio stuff. I mean, you could have built it as the EP was a little bit more acoustic-y and uh, maybe a little more unplugged, which was the trend at the right. time. I personally think this album is pretty good, but it is different than their traditional sure. You know, normal albums, but like it was funny. I was uh, driving in a car early this morning and Nutshell came on Sirius XM and I was like, my God, that's such a good, good song. You know, there's a lot of what I loved about this era of Alice in Chains or this album was like it was uber melodic. I mean, how do you not appreciate everything that goes into the song? No excuses. I mean, you can't not like it. It's got the little drum parts and the harmonies. You know, it's uh, it's it's a good one, sure. but it was a departure, but it kept them. This is what I mean about that pinnacle time of 94. You had Soundgarden, you had Alice in Chains, and we have others that we can talk about, too. They were all humongous at this point in time in their careers. Right. Yeah. And I, I do. Like, I like Nutshell and I Stay Away. I think those are great, great songs. I mean, they're just phenomenal. Um, I'm. I, at the time, if you remember, they did play the hell of, out of them on the radio, so people might have got sick of them quickly. But those really are good tunes. It's but you're right. It's I mean compared to Dirt, Dirt to me is their their that's the their high watermark. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. But then you look at other albums that came out this year since we're in this category, right? You had Stone Temple Pilots that released Purple, um, Purple yeah. right? And and Purple, again, you, you couldn't turn on the radio and not hear anyone of Soundgarden or Alice in Chains right. 
or Stone Temple Pilots or another band that we're going to talk about after this. But again, Vaseline, Interstate Love Song. I mean, Big Empty, Unglued. Still on the radio to this day. I will say, for me personally, I would take this album over Super Unknown or Jar of Flies. Wow. Wow. Because... That's a bold statement. Because... What I liked about Stone Temple Pilots, okay, is as dark and ominous as the Seattle bands, you know, the Soundgardens, the, you know, the Melvins, Alice in Chains, those kinds of bands were. Stone Temple Pilots was an L.A. band, okay? So they adopted a lot of the dark tendencies that was coming down the pipe, but they still kept a heavy rock vibe and uh wyland is such a an enigma he's like david bowie or axel rose you know you never know what one you're gonna get you know i mean it's just fucking insanity every time but the performance that they put on is just fantastic and when you listen to the you know the songs for that album right there i would take interstate love song over anything on jar flies I think Interstate Love Song is probably one of the well, most well-crafted songs that has ever been created. You know, and when you listen to it with the vocal harmonies and the way that the band plays together and all the parts and stuff like that, and it's melodic, yeah, it's kind of laid back, yeah, it is, but it's a well-written song. So if you're talking about, you know, well, well, I'm not really into good songs, okay, well, then don't listen to crap songs. But if it's like, well, I really like a good song, that's a really good song. You know, you go back and you listen to it and you're kind of sitting there and it's like, man. And it's one of those songs that really puts you in a nostalgic trip when you hear it. You know, like you, you won't hear it for, you know, months on end, maybe a year, whatever it goes. All of a sudden it pops up on the radio and you're like, I remember this. This is some cool shit. Makes you smile. You know, you're singing along with it. So that's what I love about I, it. And and I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I mean, I would go the route of STP, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden any day over a couple of these sure. other bands. And I'm not being critical, right. but I'm just not a fan of them. So, Bill, uh, I mean, three bands here. Pearl Jam put out Vitology, another gazillion album sold. You had Nine Inch Nails, who uh, released um, uh, The Downward Spile. And then you had uh, Nirvana's unplugged New York City MTV show, Again, he was gone already. I mean, this album wasn't supposed to come out. He was already gone, committed suicide a year earlier. But these were the other bands that were all over radio. And to me, Nine Inch Nails, this was the start of that industrial sound. I personally wasn't a fan. Didn't like Nine Inch Nails, respected them, didn't like Nirvana, and never grasped to Pearl Jam. So, Bill, what's your take on these bands and albums? Uh, I I honestly wasn't really a fan of, of all three myself. Nine Inch Nails, I I I could take them or leave them. I mean, I I get it. There was definitely, um, there was definitely some thought put into that, and you know, in the Nirvana Unplugged, I mean, it's not bad or anything. I just I was well over Nirvana by the time that came out, right? And you know, just wasn't something I wanted to listen to. And unfortunately, if you listen to the radio back then, you could not escape any of it. <laughs> you know right and 
So I just, I guess I was, I was well burned out by then. And I, yeah, I, I only liked Pearl Jam's first album really. So, so by that time I definitely wasn't really uh, into Vitology. I just, that uh, I'm not a fan of that album. It was oversaturated. I mean, nothing against Pearl Jam. It was just, I mean, and I, I don't know. I know they were, this was the whole Seattle thing, but I mean, the album, look, the album cover is just, it's blank. It's leather. It's black. It's bland. We weren't used to that stuff. We were used to colors and (laughs) whatever, all kinds of crazy stuff on there. But let's not forget our guitar hero, the metal God, Rob Halford. You know what? He hooked up with Trent Reznor eventually down the line. And uh, he put out that album called uh, the two album. Right. And, you know, even Rob had a period there of industrialization here, let's call it. But uh, yeah. But again, this is what we were saying in the beginning of the show. We can't take this away from what the four or five bands we just talked about, because every one of these bands was at their biggest point of their career. They were the face of rock and roll. And, you know, it's funny, Bill, you mentioned something before and I wanted to comment on it. There was, um, like I said, the 80s bands are heroes, right? What what really came out of 1994 from these 80s bands? It was amazing. I You always just think something's there. And then you look at it and you're like, there was nothing there. And I mean, it was a matter of there was what, maybe six releases of bands that came out. Do you remember any of these albums coming I out? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, Love Hate, that's, yeah, I don't remember that album at all. Dangerous Toys, I think I remember that album coming out, but I don't couldn't name one song off of it. How about you, Ian? Any memories of Cinderella still no, climbing? but I mean, I remember uh, Vicious Circle from L.A. Guns, and that's probably it. I mean, Love Hate at that point, you know, once you got past, you know, Blackout in the Red Room, I kind of was like, they were gone, you know, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> to to sidestep that a little bit, especially with this collection of bands that's here, the one album that was a diversion that I do have to point out that is a personal favorite of mine is the self-titled from Motley Crue. All right. And the reason that it is is because it's such a diversion from what normal Motley Crue sounded like with John Karabia vocals. It was so freaking heavy and dark. And um, that kind of set a different vibe for the band at that point. And unfortunately, they decided to kowtow to their, um, I don't even know what interest it was. You know, they pulled Vince Neil back in in 96 and they released some terrible, terrible albums. You know, but this album here, you know, I would I would put this album side by side with Too Fast for Love. And I could re- literally scrap everything else that came in between, including Dr. Feelgood, which is a great album, because I think that that's probably their two best albums in the catalog. You know, if, I, if so I, what exactly did happen? Why was this only a one and done deal? Well, they did a they did a. EP called Quarterary, which was like uh, almost like taking the the concept of the Kiss solo albums, but kind of putting it all together. Like, okay, you write a song the way that you want to write a song, and you write a song the way that you want to write a song. So they took the four ideas from these guys and they plapped them in, and it was the one collection of stuff that was kind of like an extra add-on for like the first, I think, two hundred or two thousand 
purchasers of this CD. And I honest to God think it was an ego trip thing with Nikki six, man. I think that they just were not coming across like they wanted to. And uh, when he went back home and he looked at, you know, the, the books and everything else. And he's like, you know what? Doc McGee was right. We should get Vince back in the band. But Karabi sings the shit out of this album. And he does it so much better than Vince ever could have even thought of doing. And Karabi plays guitar with Mick, helped him write a bunch of the stuff on this. I mean, it's anybody that's never checked it out, give yourself a chance, listen to it. It's really a freaking good, heavy, dark album. It's a good album. Um, a, a question for you, Ian, yeah. the song Brandon, yes. uh, where did this come from? Was this, uh, is this the, is this where that song was contained? Brandon? No, I think, Tommy yeah, Lee I song? think there was on, uh, uh, generation swine. I think. Yeah. Okay. Cause that was for his, his okay. kid that was just born. That was when he was, you know, deep in love. And I say deep metaphorically deep in love with, with Pam Anderson, Anderson yeah. right? Cause you know, Tommy's, got three legs and you know the rest of us are walking around on two so well bill when you move to florida and you open up your painting business down there and you happen to run past pam anderson please give her a, a coat of fresh paint I, uh, she needs it really bad and bring out the plastic i actually too, met her in florida spackle. when i lived there really i was at a motley crew show <laughs> they were playing what was called livestock and yeah. it was an outdoor festival they did every year and I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, there she is right next to me. And I'm like, whoa. And then she goes, whoa. <laughs> and that was the extent of our uh, our greetings. You mean you didn't look at her and go, hey, nice tits. No. Nothing? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. That's too bad. But I will say she was funny. She laughed. She, uh, you know. Sure. <laughs> they say she's quite the character. So you know, I mean, I don't, you know. You never know with that, with uh, with Hollywood types, you know, what you're going to get, you know, yeah, right. a little, you know, but <laughs> yeah. And there might be a bit of that, too, but sure. Yeah. So just going back to the music, uh, good story, Bill. Bill, um, how about Corrosion of Conformity's uh, Deliverance, right? I know. I know you like that, that album. I don't have to ask you. I know it. Yep. Talk about uh, Deliverance. Oh, that's a killer album uh, that when that came out, um, I was. I was very impressed because uh, just the the quality of the recording, the songwriting on that album, it's heavier than shit, but there's still a lot of melody, a lot of harmonies. Right. Um, you know, just they they used to play the hell out of Albatross and Clean My Wounds on the radio, but those are two yeah. great songs. They still get radio play now and then. Yeah. Um, but uh, just, just an absolute awesome album and they're great live i saw that tour as well they played so loud yes very loud so loud <laughs> when you see them live and correct me if i'm wrong this was the first album where pepper keenan took front and center correct, correct. and he became the face of coc yes. and actually i was i was happy for that but um their their previous album i'm sorry i can't the name of it escapes me blind Blind, 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 right? He did sing one song on that album, and that was actually my favorite song on that album. So I was very happy that he he yep. became their full time front man. Yep, vote with a bullet. Yep, that was yes. that, yep. that was a a huge. You could see that's like when the uh, the atom bomb got dropped, and you see that 
and then you're waiting for the mushroom cloud and the big explosion afterwards, you saw that that's vote with a bullet. Yes. And then deliverance is the, and all of the aftermath. I mean, it's just a freaking monster album, man. So good. Yeah. That one stayed in my deck for a long time. Yeah. And that was the, it was the, the sort of, they, they changed their sound or adapted their sound a little bit to have a little bit more of that, stoner rock doomy sound it was less punk yeah. and then they carried it on with wise blood True. and a few of the albums after that and it kind of that's kind of been their sound since and it's a sound that i personally love yeah. and uh i can get behind these guys anytime so one of my uh one of my favorites from well i should say all tony martin era black sabbath is a favorite of mine and sabbath put out cross purposes in 1994 right now, now this one for me personally meant a lot a, because it was like it was a weird time because, you know, uh, Headless Cross and Tear came out and then they kind of threw Tony Martin to the street. They brought Dio back for Dehumanizer. And then all of a sudden, here comes Tony Martin back right. in. But Geezer stays along. And what comes out of that is a a full album written by Tony and Geezer, not just Tony himself. And great songs. Um, the, the tour was fucking awesome. Yep. Number one, this was the period where they took out Motorhead for like three or four straight tours in a row. Nice. But this was also the one where they dusted off all these old Ozzy songs. And uh, they played Symptom of the Universe, Into the Void, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, The Wizard. And it was just a treat to hear this stuff go along with the rest of the catalog, plus the new stuff. You know, unfortunately, it was that period where the commercial success wasn't that great for the band. They were playing like mid-sized theaters to clubs. I mean, they would always fill up the big cities. Right. But... It wasn't the uh, the pinnacle of the band, but a period that I much appreciate. Ian, what do you think about Cross Purposes? I love it. it listen, you know, I, I went on record before. I mean, the Tony Martin era, the early stuff, the, the thing that was the craziest part about it was the production. Right? Some of the production, to me, at times was a little sketch, but I thought that most of the material was really good. Dehumanizer, I thought, was holy shit. And then, you know between cross purposes and forbidden. I mean, these are albums that this is where, when you have these bands, you know, I mean, unfortunately Bonham died. So you didn't have Sabbath or Zeppelin, excuse me for their, um, you know, their rebirth, but motorhead black Sabbath consistently Judas priest too. Sorry. Um, Even with Ripper in there, you know, I mean, they did a great job, but, um, those bands continued and really put out some great material in this time period here. You know, the one thing that I enjoyed about it was actually geezer and Tony writing together because Tony had been writing and the foil on bass that had been opposite of him for the longest time was Neil Murray. And Neil mm-hmm. Murray is a monster bass player, but geezer has a little bit more familiarity with, little riffmeister tony that he is there so i mean that this this definitely brought out a lot of a lot of great material um bill do you are you a fan at all of this yes and i wasn't at first i remember the first time i listened to this album i wasn't fully intent listening to it and um just did what didn't really sink in yeah and it was it was a weird time for sabbath honestly you know it, it was a strange time but man the looking back Going back to that album, it's it's phenomenal. They, that yeah. that whole period. I mean, that's uh, it's it it the Tony Martin's vocals are incredible, huge. Yeah, yeah. 
And the song Evil Eye, that was the one that uh, Eddie Van Halen did a little tinkering yes, in the studio I was with Tony. Say, yeah. um, you know, that one's captured. And I don't know exactly remember if it made it to the album or not. But there was definitely at least a thank you on the album from Tony to Eddie. And at least we know at some point they jammed and that was the song that they they tinkered around with. So um, good stuff Absolutely. there. Uh Ian, what else you got from 94? I know there's a couple nuggets you're dying to talk about, and I know one of them. Go ahead, spill it. So there's this little fella by the name of Zach Wild. Got a beard, kind of like Bill's. Released an album called Pride and Glory. Now, this was a complete departure from what he had just done previously with Ozzy Osbourne. A little bit more Southern rock, kind of like... Uh, Blackfoot on steroids, really. But the Pride and Glory album with Brian Tichy on drums and James Lomenzo on bass is such a good album. And it is so heavy and so cool. And it's one of those albums that you could pull out at a backyard barbecue and people would still be digging it, you know, whether they were freaking headbangers or whether they were somebody that was, you know, listening to Top 40 radio because the music is so good as you go through the album. It's just, I'm. this was one of those albums, you know, that for, thank God for a couple of these albums that did come out that were saving graces for me, uh, especially for inspiration. You know, this was one of those albums that jumped out of there. You know, all right, obviously the, the title track, Losing Your Mind, or the starting track, Losing Your Mind, was the big radio friendly. But as you go through and you, Songs like Horse Call War, Shine On, you know, you've got um, Harvester of Pain, Trouble Wine, Machine Gun, Crimey River, Toe in the Line. There are songs on here that literally could have been on any modern day heavy rock, stoner rock, doom rock, whatever you want to call it kind of album. These guys did something completely different at the time. And those three musicians together was just fantastic. I, just, and they were, they were going for that a bit of a Southern oh, rock huge. sound. I remember yeah. for me at that yeah. time, like I didn't understand why, like maybe I was even a little angry at Zach. I was like, what Zach brings back Ozzy <laughs> from the dead of two or three great albums. Right. And then he leaves. Sure. Like, I don't get this. And this is what he wants to do. Like Southern rock. I remember seeing him at the Birchill nightclub in Jersey yeah. when this album came out. And this is sad, but there was maybe a hundred people mm. there and it was empty. Zach was r running around, standing on the bar, soloing, drinking beer. But it was like a two and a half hour show where every song was played. He was doing covers of Allman Brothers, yeah. Skinner, Sabbath songs. It was, a, and then he followed it up a couple of years later with a, another solo album. I don't remember the Book name of, of that one. Was it Book of Shadows? Yeah. Right. But it was definitely his, his almonds period. You well, know, if you, but, if you uh, remember the, confederate flag guitar he had because yes. he was into the whole southern vibe ozzy set the thing on fucking fire and after they put it out zach kept it the way it was and all he did was he nailed beer bottle caps to the fucking thing and that's how it was decorated and i think it still hangs in his in his vault today the same way you know because ozzy was like oh fuck that southern shit or whatever the hell he said to him but out of that Southern thing that Zach was into, you had songs on No More Tears like Mama, I'm Coming Home with the 
the twangy, you know, uh, ghost bends and the, you know, the banjo rolls and the slide guitars. So I was a fan, you know, and especially digging bands like Molly Hatchet, Skinner, and, you know, uh, you know, Blackfoot. Yeah. This was, I, I was like, okay, go with it, Zach. Let's see what happens. You know, he just kind of put his spin to it. So. I got to say, I love, love, love this album. I loved it from the minute I heard it. I love it to this very day. In fact, I just jammed it the other day from start to finish. Nice. I saw that tour and I was lucky. I saw it in St. Pete and there was a lot of people at that show. Yeah. Um, It was at a Janice Landing, which is still there. It's a outdoor joint. It holds like a thousand people and it was quite pretty packed. Nice. And yeah, just like you said, uh, naming off all those tunes, all the, I mean, they're, Except for the very last song, I Hate Your Guts. (laughs) And even it doesn't bother me one bit, the Southern twang or any of that. I love it. I think it's great, man. He just does it so amazingly. And honestly, I think it's the best thing Zach's ever done. That's my personal opinion. I, you know, I no rest for the wicked, no more tears. Those are great albums, but I, that Pride and Glory is just amazing. I thought that when he released the first Black Label Society album that I was like, you know, I I can dig it. I, I see the vibe he's going for, but I wish he would have gotten Black Label or Pride and Glory back together. Yes, because absolutely. Those those guys there, it's like, okay, listen, here's some heavier ideas I got, but let's see if we can kind of make it sound like what we did. And I thought that that would have been awesome. You know, I, yeah. I still, I keep my fingers crossed that one day he may decide to to do another one, but I, I, I don't, I don't know if his voice is the same as it was back then, but you know, but yeah, no, but when he was singing back then, I liked his voice a lot better. I loved it. It was, he yeah. had a, he has a great voice. He really yeah. does have a great singing yeah. voice. Yeah. And real quick, he grew up in Jackson, New Jersey, which is a very redneck town. Mm-hmm. So he was always a redneck. He was born in a redneck town. So sure. <laughs> Yeah. Now I know Jackson yeah. well. Now, Lance, well it was. I don't know how it is now. I'm talking about back in the eighties. It, it's still okay. that way a bit. Now, Lance, <laughs> you gotta remember when he was first getting this band together, he did a pop up show that there's actually a YouTube video of. Um, it was in a like a strip mall down in yeah. Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The, I'll have to look that up. I'm yeah. not aware of that one. So yep, they got up, they okay. jammed uh I think they did Mississippi Queen and War Pigs and Something yes, else. I've seen and, that. Yeah, it was actually pretty cool. You know, he's out there with his right. sleeveless flannel shirt and his baseball cap, and yeah. but that was right down in Jersey. Was that like some? Sure. I was waiting to see girls with big, you know, the big hair. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, earlier this week, uh, John and I had the pleasure of speaking to Tommy Victor of Prom, oh, and they have a great new album out called "State of Emergency." But in 1994, their signature album. Cleansing came out. I was a huge fan of Prong. Their sound was different. It was a bit thrashy. It was a bit metal. It had industrial flavor. It had Tommy Victor's signature guitar sound, the vocal delivery. Cleansing will be their claim to fame album. Snap your fingers, snap your neck, cut rate. Uh, Whose fist is this anyway? I love this period. It was a weird one. It didn't fit in, but it was a good one. Another one that was a weird one and a good one that didn't fit in was King's X. Uh, They put out the album Dog Man. It was heavy. It was dark. I don't know if this was their way of picking up grunge, but uh, both of these albums were kind of outliers for me, but really were 
great quality material for the year. What do you guys think about these albums? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Do you not know about them? Go ahead, Bill. I saw them both on the, on those tours, and I thought they were great. Um, uh, the King's Axe, I, 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 I'm not as much of a huge fan of that album, but it is dark. It, it is heavy. I think they were they were definitely pissed off at the time. I think that was their their statement is that they were pissed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, I, you know, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it's not my favorite album, but it's definitely a good album. And they were great live and same prom, same thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm beg to differ is my favorite prong album, but when this album came out, they all of a sudden they were huge. They, and I saw them in a, it was a, a decent sized club in Tampa and it was sold out and it was a great show. They, they put on a hell of a show. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, the the one thing I do have to reiterate was I think that grunge took a lot more nod from King Zex than King Zex took from the grunge movement. You yeah. know, I mean, King Zex was, was, had some brooding moments since their beginning. This was definitely a darker overall album. You know, but I think there was so many albums at this time period they kind of did that route. Um, Dogman's uh, Dog a great album. Now, the cleansing, or cleansing, excuse me, from Prong. Um, I remember first time hearing it. And I'm thinking, I go, okay, these guys got something going on. You know, you could tell they've got that East Coast attitude versus West Coast vibe. You understand? You know, I mean, it's like with mm-hmm. typo negative. It's kind of like with bio. They're a New York right, band. Right. They are a New York it's like band. It's like with biohazard. You know, it's like, to, you know, when you hear that, you know, I always told everybody, I said, I go, you know, people talk about, you know, well, you know, uh, Anthrax and Slayer, essentially, you know, I mean, all, all the bands in that period, though, uh, you know, grew up liking uh, hardcore um, as well as as heavy metal. But there's a difference between New York hardcore and West Coast hardcore, you know. And when you listen to Anthrax, you can hear the New York hardcore, where when you listen to Slayer, you don't hear as much of the West Coast because some of the West Coast stuff was a little bit different. You know, I mean, it was it's there, but it's not like with Anthrax. It's like, oh, I can hear the hardcore. The West Coast was more loose. Yeah. Their hardcore yeah, especially was the Black more Flag shit. Yeah. Loose. Think about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where New York hardcore was, you know. I'll meet you in the alley, motherfucker. I got to throw this in. Sick of it all. Uh, oh. That was a great yeah. uh, Scratch the surface. Great, yes, great album that came out in 1994. Yes, it would. That's what I'm saying about 94. There's variety all over the board, right? You can't really say there was one thing or another. Um, you know, I, I don't I want to I don't want to lose track of some of our heroes from back in the day. But there was three albums that came out. This year that probably flew under the radar. I think they're all good, but we don't remember them as these albums that make or break the band's career. Alice Cooper, Megadeth, Bruce Dickinson, right? Alice Cooper puts out The Last Temptation. Good album. Good album. It's a good album, right? But you don't remember it for anything in particular. You had the song Lost in America on there. They didn't do a ton of touring in the States for it. I remember it also was like, okay, they just came off the NTV area with Hey Stupid and, um, you know, and uh, uh, the the prior album with Poison on it. But, you know, good album, 
just flew under the radar. Yeah, you're right. Um, You're right. I would think the other ones would be uh, Bruce Dickinson, right? Now, were you guys uh, a fan of the Bruce Dickinson album, Balls to Picasso? I personally don't have a big recollection of it, and I don't know why, because I loved his solo albums, Tattooed Millionaire, um, but... I don't know. Maybe I was just not thinking about Bruce at this time. Bill, do you remember this one at all? I, honestly, I don't. I know I've heard it, I, but I couldn't name one song off it right now because I never did own it. And uh, yeah, it just kind of kind of surpassed me. And that's not to to be an insult to to Bruce. I mean, Bruce is amazing, but no, yeah, I I, I totally I'm in the same ballpark as Bill. I, I don't. I couldn't tell you, you know, if you played me a song and it's, oh, yeah, I remember that song. I think Tears of the Dragon was maybe the one song that got a little airplay, yeah, you know, or but it didn't have that same radio aura as Tattooed Millionaire right, at all. Right. You know, and I don't even know, you know, because like at this point, let's just throw it out there for the kids that grew up in the 80s. MTV was in flux, not fucked like it is, you know, a, a, a later on in the 90s. But at this point, you know, like even a headbangers ball thing. I mean, they were minimizing it down mm-hmm. to nothing. Um, you know, I think 120 minutes became 360 minutes, you know, whatever the hell they did with it. You know, <laughs> they had all of these stupid programs that they did. And everything that was anything that we grew up with was kind of getting pushed further away. Yeah. So, like, you were seeing, like, scattered bits of stuff that came through. Yeah, um, Beavis and Butthead was, the like, the biggest thing on MTV at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, and that was, you know, thank God, because down the road a couple of years is, you know, my pregnant 16 year old daughter or whatever the hell it is. They're (laughs) stupid show, you know, no music, nothing but garbage, you know? So, I mean, I guess that experiment ended bad, ended badly. So thank you, MTV, for showing us that videos do suck. Yes. So Megadeth puts out euthanasia. Um, I think it's a good album. It's uh, it's different, but it's got some good tracks on it. Sure. Again, not one you're going to pull out of your top five, but I think you can. We can all agree there's probably four or five great tracks on it, right? Yeah, I it, yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a good album, but not a great album. It, it's right. it's not a bad album, but it, uh, I just I it's definitely not one that I reach for when I want to listen to Megadeth. Right, correct. Yeah, it's it kind of lost. You know, I mean, when you got Dave singing, you know, you're going to retain at least a little bit of the Megadeth kind of sound. But like even the production of it is completely different than it was uh, toned down for sure. Yeah. Compared to even Countdown, you know, I mean, Countdown still was like, you know, it was like an extension of Rust in Peace at that point, you know, where. Rest in peace, you know, still to me is that's that's an apex moment for these guys. But, you know, this one was not terrible, but um I you know, honest to God, I think that what ended up happening was Metallica came out, did the black album, okay, proved that they could still rock as heavy as anybody else, but they didn't have to follow the same template over and over again. And when everybody saw that they went on a two-year tour and they made so much freaking money off touring and the sale of that album that everyone decided, you know, I think I want a piece of that. Slayer, mm-hmm. yep. Megadeth. You know, we talked about two of those out al- two albums right there 
that followed right afterwards. And it's like they changed their format to try to be something that they're not. And it took them a couple of years to finally get back on track and get back to what they were. You know, and I mean, you know, Metallica's experiment, they did the same thing, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. no slight to anybody when you're nobody wants to rewrite the same album over and over again, with the exception of maybe ACDC or, you know, somebody like that. But that's a different kind of formula. It's a different kind of vibe when you're doing thrash metal, you know, I mean, Sometimes people get burnt out with stuff, you know, and it's like, well, I want to try to write a song like this, or maybe I want to try to sing like this. So you can't have any slight for them, but to have people criticize one band, but then follow that same trajectory afterwards because they see how much success they had. That was a little bit dissatisfying. I think at that point. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right, Ian. And I think we've talked about this in prior episodes. Mm-hmm. It was the same kind of approach a lot of the 80s bands did. They oh, tried to yeah. fit in in the current era. It sort of worked, but it didn't. Their heart probably wasn't sure. in it. Again, Euthanasia, Reckoning Day, Train of Consequences, of Tulamon, great songs. The rest of the album, you're not going to remember right. it. Cool album cover, right. though. Oh, yeah, know, definitely. But it's worth a yeah, shout who- out. Who wouldn't want to hang babies out on a clothesline? You know, I thought about that. I can't imagine Dave Mustaine in 2023 putting an album cover out like that. He's probably looking at that going cringe, cringe. Right. Right. Well, guys, um, now comes to the point of this episode where we have to get uncomfortable as we're finishing up 1994. But we have to acknowledge it. Um, You know, we talked about not much of the 80s bands was left. No big hitters. Very few new releases. The 90s grunge sound, they're at their pinnacle. Um, You know, a lot of the metal bands are hanging on in one way or another. But now there's a new wave of metal coming through called New Metal. And um, two bands debuted their albums, Korn and Marilyn Manson. And uh, again, whether we like it or not, we have to be objective here and acknowledge their existence in 1994. Um I'm not going to say what I think of them. I want you guys go first. I want you. Well, to go I'll first. say real quick about Corn. I actually saw them before that album came out, and I was mildly surprised that uh, I had no idea who they were. And they were they were opening for uh, for Sick of It All actually, oh. and they kicked ass. I mean, they blew the place away. They definitely stole the show. I thought it was cool. I thought what they were doing was totally different, and. Uh, I liked it for a minute, and I will say a minute because it got old really fast. Right. <laughs> um, Ian, the one thing that I always like to tell people about corn is when you eat it, it comes out looking the same way in your shit, <laughs> and that's the exact same way that I felt. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's at this point, you know, you're hearing it on the radio. It's hitting you all the time on MTV. And, and all right, after a while, you kind of start doing the head nod thing to some of the songs. But then when I listen back to it afterwards, I'm like, I don't know how I could have stood to listen because the the subtonic frequencies of the guitars were tuned lower than the bass. So you're hearing that 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 slapping ping of the bass guitar and then the guitars with that no i'm i like staccato picking you know give me hatfield any day over that you know or you know input said guitarist you know that that kind of gets that vibe um 
I just really didn't wasn't a big fan. And then I didn't I didn't dig it either, honestly. And it was I mean, that's an amazing explanation from a musician's point of view, Ian. I would have never known what any of that stuff means. <laughs> but to me, it was OK. It was angry, but it was almost like whiny, angry. Yeah. And just I remember the kids that were coming around at that point of time. They just looked like fucking weirdos. I hate to say it like and they, they were just like sticking out. They sticking out. <laughs> they didn't have an identity. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this stuff? You know, like and Manson comes out the same way. And, you know, for all that, the people that like Manson, it was like it created a whole new generation of I wouldn't even call it metalheads. Because now, let's be honest, as we go through the 90s, this stuff is going to be like the new metal is the foundation of the right. 90s from 95, probably to 2000. Hey. And uh, all the big tours, OzFest comes out. He's taking all these bands out and they're still they still got staying power. So and it, it picked up a whole new generation of fans, whether we liked it or not. It was part of the metal community. This was the beginning of the hot topic crowd. Okay. You remember those stovepipe freaking pants that the kids would wear in the 90s? Okay. All yeah. that shit started around this time. You know, it was just, it was, it was different. It was, it was almost like being obnoxious just to make sure that you pissed off people. You know, where like, you know, I mean, we're all old headbangers. Yeah. We had long hair. Yeah. We smoked cigarettes. Yeah. We got drunk, you know. But you never went home and looked at your mother and said, fuck you, mom. This is the generation that did. We never would. Yep. You know, and that was that's kind of, you know, and I to to coin a phrase from the Vernomatic, I don't want to be the old man, you know, get off my lawn guy. But that's what <laughs> this is what I think of. You know, it's like, OK, I get out of here, you know, and these are the same kids now that have kids that, you know, they're living in the same dumpy old shithole and they're on welfare and it's the stuff that drives us all crazy, you know, and it's, I just want my metal to be metal. I don't want my metal to be hip hop. I'm sorry. I don't. You just want your MTV. Well, you just want your MTV. I, actually, I just want the old vinyl. Give me the vinyl. You know, that's really what it is. And it's amazing as we're describing how these bands like Manson and Korn oh. are pissed off. As as Ian's talking about it, he's getting pissed well, it's off. just, you know, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, you know, but it's, you know, you think about um, where we came from uh, musically. It was fun. Even if it was angry and dark and heavy, it was fun. Nobody wanted it where, like, with these kids, all of a sudden it was like things went sideways real quick. You know. Well, I, I would say this. You could go to like Party City during the Halloween season and you could go back and say, hey, I want to be an 80s rocker. There's going to be wigs and outfits. And you could even go there and get 90s grunge oh, outfits, right. flannel jackets. <laughs> and other. I'm telling you right now, there's no fucking way there's going to be a, 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 a this kind of oh, new metal outfit. Sure. Right. Nobody's going to Halloween right. and dressed up as new right. metal. No, thank you. Well, when um, we were kids, think about it. What the, you, you got to remember back in the in the 80s early eighties, everybody at one point went as a punk rocker. You know, you had that spray yeah. on hairspray stuff. So everybody would spray a stripe in their hair or, you know, try to, you know, make their hair stick up as a mohawk, you know, and you're wearing <laughs> funky glasses and weird clothes, you know. That was just one of those things. Absolutely.
absolutely. So kids, get back out there and let's end this on a good right. note. You're going to take out COC's deliverance, overkill's wide fucking open, and you're going to take out Black Sabbath's cross purposes, and that's the way you straighten <laughs> up for metal 1994. Guys, we covered it all. This was a fantastic episode. Great to have you guys back on. We right. will do it again soon. 1995's coming. We're going to hear all about that. And we promise you guys back sooner than six months from now. Okay? Promise, guys. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.